Today we continue our study in Matthew's Gospel, beginning at the end of Matthew chapter 14 and into 15. Hear God's holy word. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent out into all that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. And the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tra tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you that you would give us your spirit now, that you would fill me with your spirit, that I might articulate these things clearly, that you would open our hearts and minds to receive your word and that it might dwell in us richly. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. People of God, traditions can be very good. It is good to receive manners and customs and rituals and habits from previous generations to practice them, to preserve them, to give thanks for them and to pass them on to following generations. Traditions give you a connection to the other people around you. They give you a connection to your history. There is a glory and a comfort in simply receiving liturgies of life, taking things that have stood the test of time and to resist the temptation to put your fingerprints all over them, to change things up, to make them somehow more meaningful or more sincere. We have this compulsion, especially in our generation, to change everything. We have this built-in assumption that it's insincere somehow to simply pray the words that Christians have prayed for centuries, to confess our faith using a creed that was written in the fourth century, or to use in wedding ceremonies, use vows that centuries of Christians have found helpful for their, for their marriages. No, we have to make it all our own by taking away from it or adding to it. It has to be special to me. And if I don't monkey with it, then it's not special to me. In 1 Corinthians 11, the apostle Paul writes, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul also writes, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold Hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by our epistle. And later in that same book, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul warns them to withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from the apostles. So good traditions are tutors that train us in maturity and sanctification. Keeping good traditions is one way that we keep the fifth commandment. We obey the commandment to honor our father and mother by keeping traditions. It, it, it demonstrates a respect for the understanding and the experience of those who've come before us in, in uh, keeping good habits and practices. We're being influenced by a perspective that hasn't itself been influenced by the spirit of our, of our day. There is great wisdom in keeping good traditions, but not all traditions are good. Bad traditions are suffocating. Bad traditions uh, are wicked and actually promote disobedience to God's law. Bad traditions give you a sense of, of comfort and piety 
in dutifully keeping the tradition, even though in the midst of that, you're actively doing what God has prohibited. You can even mask your rebellion toward God by covering yourself in tradition, which, which is why tradition is always, always, always secondary to God's explicit authoritative word. You can imagine in the first century, in the context of the church in the first century, they had people coming from all over the place, from all forms of paganism and heathenism. And, and you can imagine that someone would come to a church with a family tradition of polygamy. I mean, my daddy had four wives and his daddy had six wives and his daddy before him had three wives. This is just what we do. But no matter how long that's been going on in your family, you've got to kill that tradition. You have to put it to death. Once you become a Christian and put yourself under the authority of God's word, that bad tradition must die. I don't care how long your family has been doing it. It has to die. You can't do that anymore. You must submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or maybe people were coming to the church out of the traditions of the Stoics who and Stoics look for ways to make themselves uncomfortable, who deny pleasurable things. They refuse good food and good drink. And when you come to Christ, you find out you don't have to submit to those expectations anymore. You don't have to do that. You're liberated from false humility and liberated from empty self-affliction. So you, you're liberated. You're free to delight in God's good creation. You can put those traditions away because they're bad. As we come to Matthew 15, we find that Jesus himself is accused of not keeping certain traditions. And his, in his response to this, Jesus doesn't go on the attack against all traditions. Jesus is not a radical. He's not a revolutionary. He doesn't throw away everything and start over with a blank piece of paper. But he does correct bad traditions. He, he corrects those things which are not helpful, things which bind men in such a way that they teach lies and they create this insulation around their wicked behavior. It, it, these traditions create this, this blanket of comfort around disobedience to God's law. Those who were rigidly following the traditions of men were using them as a way to excuse themselves from their obligations to what God had said. So I started reading at the beginning of, uh, I'm sorry, at the end of chapter 14, which is right where we left off last week. We, we left off right before the last few verses of 14. I wanted to save those for this week because you get a sense here of the growing popularity of Jesus. Now, his profile has risen in the public consciousness of Judea to where everybody knows who he is at this point. Early on in his ministry, he stayed up around the Sea of Galilee. He hadn't moved in a deliberate way toward Jerusalem as he is beginning to now. Now he's making his way toward Jerusalem and as he does this, he's gaining this multitude of followers. At one point last week, we saw him feed 5,000 people. He has quite a congregation of people around him. And last week, we also saw that even Herod has heard reports about Jesus. Everybody knows who he is now. Everybody is hearing about him. And after the feeding of the 5,000, John tells us that there were some men who laid hands on him and were going to crown him king. They were ready to, to make him ruler of everything. So, so uh, in order to investigate this man and this new movement, top scribes and Pharisees, scholars and experts in the law are sent from Jerusalem, from the headquarters, to come examine Jesus. 
And when they come watch Jesus and listen to him, they don't have to, it doesn't take very long for them to find something to criticize. And after observing him, they find something to jump on right away. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? That's their accusation. They don't wash their hands after, uh, before they eat bread. Now, this has nothing to do with normal hygiene. This has nothing to do with washing or bathing in a practical way. If you're eight years old and you look at this and you say, see, mama, Bible says I don't have to wash my hands. Uh, that's not a great argument. That's terrible exegesis. That doesn't work. This is specifically ceremonial cleansing. This is, um, when Mark tells this very same account, Mark gives us a little bit more information. Matthew was written to a a Jewish audience who knew exactly what the Pharisees were up in arms about. The, anybody who read this would know, oh yeah, that's what they're criticizing him for. Mark is a more compact gospel that was written to go out a little bit further. And so when Mark tells this very same story, Mark stops and he explains what's going on here. So Mark chapter seven, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is with unwashed hands, they found fault. And then Mark explains it. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and, and couches. Uh, so the, the, there is a ceremonial aspect of what they're talking about here. The, their criticism is specifically about the traditions surrounding ceremonial washings or cleansings which the Pharisees were dedicated to keeping. And, and just to take a step back for a second, the fact that the Pharisees weren't, I'm sorry, the fact that the disciples were not keeping these traditions indicates that there's this freedom among the, the, the people who are following Jesus, they didn't have to act a certain way to put on a show of piety. They didn't have to pretend to be religious in a certain way to avoid the criticisms of men like this. There was a freedom around Jesus to pursue true holiness and humility. They, they weren't afraid of the criticisms of these Pharisees. Well, the tradition that the Pharisees are alluding to is another example of a place where they've taken God's good law, but they have extended it out unnecessarily and slavishly applied it in ways that God never intended. Back when we were studying the Sermon on the Mount, I brought this up a few times, and, and it's good to remind ourselves again every time we get a chance. We, we always have this assumption that the Pharisees were just super serious about obeying God's law, that they loved God's law and they were doing everything they could to obey it and no, matter, no matter what it took. And um, they were just kind of nerds who were really into God's law. And Jesus comes along and he says, relax, fellas, you're taking it too seriously. But that's not at all what was going on. When Jesus comes, he doesn't say, you're taking my father's law too seriously. Jesus comes and says, you're disobeying my father's law. You're not doing it at all. You've got all this other stuff that you, you're, you're binding men's consciences with. You're, you're, you've got these heavy burdens that you're causing people to bear, which has nothing to do with my father's law. This is an important point as we read and try to understand what Jesus is doing here, that the Pharisees are not doing something that God intended or required or asked for. In fact, there are only two references in God's law to hand washing. One is in Exodus 40, which says that Moses, Aaron, and his sons would wash their hands and feet 
in the laver, which is in the temple courtyard. They would wash their hands. They would cleanse themselves there before they did their priestly duties. That's one reference. And the other reference is in Leviticus 15.11. There's that instruction that anyone whose hands have been defiled by touching something that is ceremonially unclean, they must wash their hands in pure water. They have to purify their hands before they use their hands in a ritual or to offer a sacrifice. Now, all of these purification codes in the Old Testament, they're not simple hygiene instructions. I think we also have this tendency to read those and think, oh, well, that's just, that's just proper hygiene. No, no, that's not what it's about. These codes, these principles are about how we come into the presence of a king. So when God declares something unclean in the Old Testament, that's not God saying, yuck. That's not God saying, oh, that's gross. That's not God declaring that person is nasty. And if you think that's the point, you're going to come away with a lot of weird ideas. You're going to develop some goofy theology, particularly when it comes to all the process regarding conceiving and bearing children, because all of those things make you ceremonially unclean, which is really weird if you think that God blesses us with children and yet unclean means somehow sinful or yucky or gross, right? There's a, there's a, there's a problem there. So, so um, by the way, uh, lepers were unclean. If you have to move a dead body or, or a carcass or you have to bury someone, that makes you unclean. Bearing a child, uh, having a child makes you um, unclean, giving birth. But, but again, this doesn't mean sinful. This doesn't mean yuck. This doesn't mean gross. God isn't listing things that, that he thinks, oh, that makes you disgusting and that makes you disgusting. In fact, um, for each one of these impurities, there's a relatively simple process to be ceremonially cleansed. The call is to be cleansed ceremonially, but do it God's way. And and the point of all this is that you are not made whole, you are not restored, you are not made clean on your own. You, you can't, um, you're not building your own kingdom with your own family, with your own children. No, you have to bring you, you got to bring your babies, and you got to come to the tabernacle to be cleansed God's way, to be discipled by his law, to come into the covenant community, into the fellowship of life, and that's where cleansing is. That's where life and restoration and health is. So with these purity laws, God is prescribing an etiquette by which his kingly servants, specifically the priests, how they come into the presence of the king with clean hands, which always point to the necessity of having clean hearts. The, the cleansing that God requires is never merely external. It's never simply good bodily hygiene. That's not what he's after. What does Psalm 24 say? Psalm 24 asks, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? Who does he invite into his presence? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord. So clean your hands, do the ceremonial washing before you come to offer your sacrifice, be sprinkled with clean water, and at the same time know that your heart and your conscience must also be sprinkled with the clean water, the pure water of God's mercies. That is the import of all of this. Now, there was never a commandment about ritually purifying your hands before 
eating, the, the, the necessity to ritually, ceremonially cleanse yourself was before offering a sacrifice. There's nothing about doing it before eating. But the Pharisees were skilled in being super tedious and, and making God's law a burden rather than a delight. And so they assumed, since we're all this priestly nation, we must all follow the priestly rites, or it would be a good idea if we did it. And by the way, who knows what's happening to you when you're walking around, uh, around town? You go to the marketplace, you might become defiled and not even know it. You might touch something contagious, or you might touch something defiled, or, 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 or you might come into contact with a Gentile or something that a Gentile touched. And that was the real horror. Don't miss the subtle disgust for undesirable people in all of their, in all of their extra biblical laws. There's a lot of touching and there's a lot of being touched when the Pharisees show up. People are touching Jesus. He's touching them. He sees all this, the, the, the Pharisees see all this touching and then they eat just after they've touched this leprous person or touched this person with an issue of blood. And so you have become disgusting. You have become unclean and you must do the ceremonial ritual. That was the assumption of these scribes and Pharisees. And the keeping of this ritual became their salvation. So long as they did these things, they knew and thought that they were pleasing to God. No matter what else we ignore, no matter what else we do or don't do, uh, we're clean before God. So it's always so interesting to watch how Jesus engages with these guys and how he deals with their criticism. So they press Jesus on this but he does not accept their terms of engagement. He does not accept that this is the argument that he wants to have right here in front of everybody. He doesn't grant their argument. He doesn't debate the topic on their terms. So, so they say, why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? And he turns it around and he says, why do you break God's law? I mean, that's the real conversation we need to have. Not whether my guys are following your traditions, but whether you guys are pleasing to my father and doing what God says. Listen to how he does this. Pick up in verse three. And he answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded saying, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father and mother, whatever profit you might've received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus quotes his father's law, which is exceedingly clear. Honor your father and mother, and whoever curses his father and mother shall be put to death. You know, they're, they're talking about purifications and cleansings, and Jesus takes it right to his father's law, and he, he takes it to a place far from the conversation that they wanted to have. This is nothing to do with what they wanted to talk about. But what Jesus does, he quotes Exodus, he quotes Deuteronomy, and a good and right application of the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother, a good application of that is that you provide for your elderly parents when they're incapable of providing for themselves. But what Jesus points out is that the scribes and Pharisees in their traditions have found creative ways to avoid honoring 
their parents. And instead of supporting their elderly parents, they would say something like this. They would say, well, I've taken a vow, and you know we're supposed to keep our vows, we can't break our vows, and I've taken a vow to dedicate everything I have to God. When I die, everything I have is going to support the temple. Sorry, mom and dad, I can't help you, I can't give anything to you because it's all going to God. And of course, they can still use their stuff They can still live in their house. They can still spend their money. They can still wear their clothes. They can still eat their food. They can continue to use everything that they have as long as they need it, but it's all dedicated. It's all just, it's all dedicated to the the temple. And, And while they look super mega pious by promising everything they have to the temple, they're actually, it's just a smoke screen for them to disobey God's law. They're manipulating God's law by their traditions for their own benefit. They found a loophole to get out of supporting their parents. God's law was intended to protect and to care for the helpless. It was intended to mature us, to grow us up, and they're using it in a way to get out of their duties and responsibilities and using it in a way to enslave man and to keep man immature and infantile. Jesus sees right through this. And so he quotes Isaiah 29, 13. He says, I know what's in your heart. I know what you're doing. Isaiah says, this is what people do when they want to look righteous, but they want to get away with doing whatever they want to do. And so Isaiah says, these people draw near to God with their mouth. They honor God with their lips, but their heart is far from him. They teach as doctrines of God, the traditions and commandments of men. These men, uh, you you can see where their heart is when they come to Jesus, they, they have this criticism. They say they're breaking the traditions of men. They're not saying they're breaking God's law. They're, they're breaking the traditions of the elders because that's all that's on their mind and that's what's in their heart and that's, that's what they're covered up with. That's what the, this is the definition of their lives. These scholars want to talk about the authority of tradition and the compliance or lack of compliance with tradition that's among the disciples. They want to talk in terms of their laws, but Jesus doesn't enter into that conversation. He doesn't get wrapped up into the minutia that the Pharisees love to sit around and debate. These endless, these exhausting debates that they love to have around what you can and what you can't do. Can you carry a fig on the Sabbath? I don't know. Is it a big fig or is it a small fig? Can you carry a pebble on the Sabbath? I don't know. What if a pebble gets caught in your shoe and you walk for three steps? Have you carried a pebble on the Sabbath? Have you broken the Sabbath? It's so wearisome and it's so tedious and Jesus doesn't get into any of that. If Jesus got into that, they would still be debating it today. They'd still be sitting around today. And Jesus doesn't. He just says very simply, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does my father's law say? And Jesus quotes the law and the prophets. He quotes Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Isaiah. Because Bible always trumps tradition. Tradition is an insufficient revelation of God's will for us. Tradition is not the sole authority. Jesus uses the scriptures as his final authority to judge the legitimacy of their practices and their traditions. And as I said earlier, good traditions can be helpful and praiseworthy. 
That this is what it means to be reformed for us. We are always reforming everything. We're reforming and being reformed according to the scriptures. For example, I, I love the Reformed Confessions. I love Westminster Confession and the Larger and Shorter Catechism and the Canons of Dort and the Heidelberg uh, Catechism. I love these things. They are extremely helpful in articulating biblical truth. But I don't think any of us would say, none of us would say that they're perfect. They're certainly not more authoritative than the Bible itself. They are the works of imperfect men. In a lot of places, they're the product of the climate and the culture that they were written in. There are places where the confessions speak differently from the Bible, and we have to say, well, are they using that word in a way that was common to their time, and we need to understand the context of how they use that? Or, or is it really just they're speaking in a different way or talking about something different from, when the, uh, from what the Bible is talking about? But there are places where they speak differently from the scriptures, and if there's ever any substantial disagreement with the Bible, then we have to listen and speak like the Bible. Let's listen to the scriptures and speak like the Bible. So however good and however logical or however old something may be, traditions do not eclipse the Bible's authority. And by the way, other things that don't eclipse the Bible's authority, the phrase studies show, that doesn't eclipse the Bible's authority at all. Um, or, or science has proven, that doesn't eclipse the authority of the Bible. Or in a poll of 5,000 Americans, that doesn't eclipse the authority of the Bible. Millions agree, that doesn't do it. Um, the Supreme Court decided that doesn't eclipse the authority of the Bible, or the state passed a law, none of these things, none of them eclipse the authority of the Bible. All may be fine and all have their place, but when it comes to matter, uh, matters of right living and pleasing God and what God requires, the final and ultimate answers are in his written authoritative word. They're in the Bible. And, because, and, and we can be comfortable and safe knowing that because that's where Jesus goes. That's where he goes. That's where he turns. When they bring up these issues, he quotes Bible. Bible comes out of his mouth. Now, Jesus does eventually pull his people aside, and he deals with the question that the Pharisees brought up. We're just going to read a few more verses today. Pick up in verse 10. When he called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. So first of all, Jesus gives them a short answer. He said, you know, it's not what goes in your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth. You think you're defiled by eating corruption, by eating unclean food with unclean hands. You think that's what makes you unclean before God. Actually, it's what's coming out of you that makes you unclean. 
And if the Pharisees were really paying attention to God's law, they would have recognized that a majority of the things that cause impurity physically come from your own body. They come from out of you. You are physically a source of defilement. You think of yourself as pure, but you are impure and you defile everything and everyone around you in, in, in terms of the Old Testament purity laws. You, you, uh, the, these Pharisees who believed that they were clean were going around and polluting everybody and everything else. Now keep in mind, in terms of the old covenant system, these physical impurities were always pointing to the spiritual impurities, and Jesus makes that abundantly clear because when Jesus comes, he stops the flow of defilement and, and, and pollution. Disease and ceremonial impurity do not spread to Jesus. No matter who touches him, no matter who he touches, Jesus is not made ceremonially unclean. Instead, life flows out of him. And he heals lepers and those with unclean spirits and those with issues of blood, which is his way of de demonstrating that all defilement stops with him. He purifies the world. It stops, it stops here. So after Jesus pulled them aside, the disciples say, well, you need to know Jesus. Those Pharisees were pretty offended by what you said. Uh, but Jesus doesn't apologize. He doesn't say, they were offended? We gotta go chase them down and apologize. Jesus is not apologizing. He's not saying, I'm sorry, because he hasn't sinned. There's nothing to apologize for. What does he say instead? Uh, Jesus says, you know what? Leave them alone. Don't have anything to do with them. Even their offense at what I'm saying, that's a tactic. They're, they're, uh, they're, that's a play. They're, they're blind leaders of the blind. They both will fall into a ditch. Jesus says, every plant not planted by my father will be uprooted. So the tares are gonna get thrown into the fire. Don't worry about them. Don't concern yourself with those guys. God is going to deal with them when he's ready. And then Peter says, well, tell us more about this, Jesus. What do you mean by, you said it's not what goes in your mouth that defiles you, but what comes out of you, what comes out of your mouth that defiles you? Tell us more about that. And Jesus responds, you, you know how this works. Whatever you eat goes all the way through your body. Your stomach takes what it needs and the rest is eliminated. Well, you're not defiled by uh, what you put in you. By, uh, before God, you're, you're, not, you're not defiled by what you eat. You're defiled by what comes out of you, namely what comes out of your heart. Jesus says your heart is the source. It is the genesis. It is the fountain of evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witnesses and blasphemies. Where does evil come from? It doesn't come from out there. It starts in here. That's in you. That's where it's coming from. This is a critical lesson for all of us that now, now that Jesus has come, nothing that comes from outside you can make you unacceptable to God. Nothing that comes from outside you makes you unclean. All the uncleanness that we have to worry about is already in us. We, we tend to believe that all of the sources of trouble and pain and sin are located in things outside of us. Things that happen to us make us sin. Situations we're put in excuse our sin. That, that we're backed into corners where our only response is to disobey. Now, it's true. Other people can and do sin against us. They offend us. They injure us. And this is true. But nothing 
that comes from outside of us can make us sin. There is always a righteous response to bad things that happen from the outside. And nothing that happens to us defiles us before God. All the defilement that is displeasing to God that we're responsible for comes from inside of us, from our own sin nature. You can, you can get as far as you want to away from society. You can run from civilization. You can remove yourself from every other person, and you still have a sin nature inside of you. This is the impurity that we have to cleanse. This is the defilement we must be purified of before God. Our hearts must be cleansed. Jeremiah wrote on this very same topic, you all know this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Do you know what, do you know what this means? Do you know, when Jesus says this stuff is coming out of your heart and, and Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, do you know what this means? It means you can never trust your heart. It means don't listen to your heart. It means don't follow your heart. Now, that is the opposite of what every romance novel and every Disney movie and every pop song has ever told you your entire life. Everyone thinks that your heart is this compass inside of you that's going to direct you to where you need to be and that, and that it will lead you to true happiness if only you have the courage to follow your heart. If only you have the courage to listen to your heart. The, the, the thing that's taught is you are lost, but your heart will save you. That's not what Jesus says at all. Jesus shows us that our heart is a sewer. You say things in your heart that you would never say out loud. You think things in your heart that if, if they were exposed, you would curl up and die in front of everybody right now if that were shown, if that were revealed. People follow their hearts, yeah, but they follow their hearts to divorce and fornication and to defacing the image of God and to every manner of perversion because no one lies to you more than your own heart. Jeremiah said your heart is deceitful. That means your heart lies. Your heart doesn't guide you to the truth. Your heart tells you what you already want. The heart tells you what you want to hear. The heart is selfish. If you follow your heart, you're going to abuse other people. You're going to use other people. You're going to steal and lie and do whatever it takes to satisfy your own desires and to make yourself comfortable. James, in his epistle, he asked the question, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your own desires for pleasure that war in your members? See, the source of conflict is inside of us. We are our own worst enemies. We cause so much of the pain that we suffer from. And because of all this, I'm sorry, your heart can't save you. You need to be saved from your heart. You need to be saved from the pollution that is in your heart. And so the Bible never says, follow your heart. Don't, don't follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. Somebody needs to write a children's musical cartoon all about don't follow your heart and all of the um, lessons and all the disasters that happen from following your heart. Don't follow your heart. Follow Jesus and discipline your heart. Train your heart to listen to God's word, to submit to God's law, to follow and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Learn to want what God wants. Learn to love what he loves. Learn to hate what he hates. Strengthen yourself and discipline your desires by telling yourself no. 
No, I can't have that. No, I'm not going there. No, I'm not doing that. I'm not thinking that. I'm not harboring these things. Exercise discipline over the lusts of the flesh. And when you commit your heart and fully submit your heart completely to the Lord Jesus Christ, only then will your heart be glad and your heart will be changed and it will be a source of joy and truth. As we read in Psalm 4, not everything in the Bible about the heart is bad. There's some good things. In Psalm 4, you have put gladness in my heart. Well, where did the gladness come from? It came from the outside. It came from God. And the psalmist says to Yahweh, you have put gladness in my heart. In Psalm 16, I will bless Yahweh who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. That is a heart that has been trained and submitted to God. So listening to Jesus' instruction here and looking at this terrible example of the Pharisees, we must all put to death that inclination that's exhibited here by the Pharisees, that, that compulsion to do everything but what God requires. We will we'll do anything, no matter how complicated or convoluted, to convince ourselves that we're a good person because we're following a list of self-imposed guidelines. Because I'm going to create a law, and I can follow that law better than anybody else. And because I follow my law better than you follow my law, that makes me a better person than, than you. That's what makes me better than everybody else, because I can follow my own very strict code better than anybody else. That's, that's what the Pharisees had externalized and forced on everybody else. We also have this inner Pharisee, this inner lawyer that justifies, that covers up, that tries to explain away all the guilt. You see why I did this is because, if you'll just think about it, I was put in this position and that's why I said the thing that I said. That's why I did the thing that I did. I mean, you would have done the same thing if you were in my position too. Uh, you, just, you just gotta understand. We, we expend so much effort because we'd rather do anything than repent and turn from our sins. And what Jesus offers the unclean and the guilty, what Jesus offers to the one whose heart is weighed down with the pain and the burden of trying to effort, all this effort, this fruitless effort of trying to cover our sins all by ourselves, what we need is what he offers is the true cleansing of the heart, not a superficial hand washing, but a full purification, even to the hidden parts. This cleansing begins with the washing of regeneration. You must be born again. You must receive new life in Christ. It's Titus 3.5. God saved us not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through what? The washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. When you confess your sins before God and you trust in Jesus as Lord, your sins are forgiven and God gives you his Holy Spirit to wash you and make you clean. And then as you continue to grow, you're continually progressively sanctified. You're made holy. You, you, you uncover parts of yourself that are still unclean, that still need to be washed. You find dirt in places you didn't know you had places. You find dirt in the hidden parts, in the recesses. As you continue to confess your sins, as John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This cleansing is continual as we turn away from sin. We ask the Holy Spirit to continue to wash us and to make us clean. Nothing is more refreshing than a good scrubbing. When you're filthy and, and, and sweaty 
and tired and you take a hot shower and you scrub it all off. That is so refreshing and nothing is better than being fully clean before God, clean on the inside. And that only comes through trusting the Lord Jesus Christ and confessing your sins, which is but a breath away. It's just a prayer away. Father in heaven, I have sinned against you and I hate my sins and I want them gone. Father, cleanse me and purify me and give me your spirit so I can walk in righteousness. Cleanse me, Father. That is seemingly difficult and impossible, and yet um, it is so easy in some respects and so, so close to us. If you're feeling dirty, if you're feeling awful, if you're weighed down with guilt, no amount of hand washing or other waving of the hands or doing other things will cleanse you, only the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us. We ask you to indeed cleanse us with the washing of your Holy Spirit and your word. Father, um, guide us now and grow us in grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.